we open God's word, our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 1, on page 1017 in your pew Bibles, where it will read verses 57 through 80, verses 57 through 80 of Luke chapter 1, the birth and naming of John, as well as the prophetic song that his father sings over him on that occasion, Luke chapter 1. Getting at verse 57. Now the, t- the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. But her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed And he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. Because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Congregation, you recall at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, about a month ago, we were introduced to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who were told that they're going to have a son. Even in their old age, after a long trial of infertility, God does a miracle and gives them a son. Only in Luke 1 verse 14, we see that it's not only a son for them, but it says many will rejoice at his birth. 
Just like the many sons who were born in the Old Testament to barren women, each of whom are, are born not just for their mothers, but, but to, to further God's unfolding plan of redemption. Only in this one, the redemptive plan of God is not just being furthered, it's nearing fulfillment. Which is perhaps even signaled in verse 57 when when the scene changes from from Mary's visit to Elizabeth in her 6th to ninth month to now the, the time of her son's birth. And when Luke says the time came, it literally reads, the time was fulfilled. The same kind of thing Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, the fullness of time has come. The time of fulfillment, think Luke 1 verse 1. That the time of Israel's redemption is drawing near, signaled by the birth of this one who will prepare the way for God himself. Remember, that's what the angel told Zechariah in Luke 1.17. He said of his son, he will go before the Lord and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so John, who is given this unique role, it shouldn't surprise us that the circumstances surrounding his birth and and his naming are anything but normal. As it tells us that when all of Zechariah and Elizabeth's friends heard that God had shown them mercy and rejoiced with them, it it came time for the child to be circumcised, that, that, that sign that signifies God's covenant not just with his parents but also with him, just as we've seen this morning in baptism, as this, this joyous occasion comes, as the people gather together to witness this covenant sign and, and to celebrate the entrance of this child into God's covenant community, it tells us in verse 59 that as they all gather for this, it says that they want to insist that his name should be Zechariah. Perhaps it would be something like this morning if there were maybe a a large contingent of of the congregation petitioning for for Emma's name to be not Emma, but but maybe Kristen Jr. or or Sharon or or some expected family name. To this culture, it's it's not entirely clear if the expectation was for the son to be named after the father or, or perhaps actually the grandfather. And maybe Zechariah in his old age is sort of Assuming this grandfatherly role in their minds, whichever it is, they, they want to insist that his name should be Zechariah. But Elizabeth protests, saying in verse 60, no, his name will be John, not Zechariah Jr., but John. And the people are, are not persuaded by this, but, but they say, none of your relatives has this name. As she apparently doesn't budge, they then turn to her husband who can't speak. And it says that they make signs to him, perhaps indicating that he wasn't just mute, but, but, but also deaf, as, as the word that's used back in Luke one twenty three for him being made mute actually can mean deaf also. So they make signs to him, trying to get him to, to contribute to this debate about the child's name. And it says in verse 63 that he asked them for a tablet to write on, and, and he writes, his name is John. In obedience to the angel's word in Luke 1.13. Apparently, in his nine long months of reflection... Nine long months of of silence as he has reflected on that angelic appearance and the the prophetic word that was spoken to him during that time. Apparently, Zechariah has come to believe what was spoken. And so he calls him John. And it says that all of the people wondered at this. 
This, this wasn't typical by any means. It was a circumcision and naming ceremony that broke all the expectations. It didn't fit the normal customs of the day. And it says that when Zechariah then broke out into song after nine long months of silence, fear came upon everyone. And it says that these things were talked about throughout all of the hill country of Judea. Could you imagine if Derek had, had not been able to speak for the whole nine months of Emma's time in the womb, and then when, when he and, and Kristen broke the expected pattern by, by not naming her Sharon or, or Kristen Jr., but presented Emma for baptism this morning, all of a sudden Derek then burst out into song for the first time in nine months that his lips made any noise. We would all say something unique is happening. What kind of child will this be? Which is precisely what they ask in verse 66, where it tells us that the hand of the Lord was with John. That's actually a phrase, the hand of the Lord, that, that's most frequently used in the Old Testament in connection with the Exodus. I think perhaps another hint that God is, is going to bring about a greater act of redemption than even what he did then. That this time of fulfillment that has come is the time when God is going to bring about that second exodus that the prophets foretold. The point of this whole section is the utter uniqueness of this child and the unique thing that God is doing. Kent Hughes says, by giving this boy a non-family name, God was indicating that John's mission and power would come from outside of the natural order. This is no ordinary child, but God was up to something big. As the people catch on to in verse 66, asking, what kind of child will this be? Luke then places Zechariah's prophetic song in verses 67 to 79 in answer to that question. Right after they ask, what kind of child will this be? He then breaks out into this prophetic song of celebration telling us what kind of child he will be. Uh, these may actually have been his, his very first words that he spoke as that word blessed with which the song begins in verse 68 is is the same word that was used in verse 64, where it says that as soon as his tongue was loosed, he spoke, blessing God. And now that same word, blessed, is repeated as the first word of this song. In other words, this song gives us the contents of his blessing, the, the contents of his praise. That's what I want to look at now. We actually, some of you might recall, looked at this a, a few years ago in sort of a three-part Advent series on Zechariah's song. And so I won't say everything this morning that there is to say about it, but I want to focus just on a couple of observations about this song of Zechariah. Um, first of all, notice that like Mary, um, Zechariah here praises God with the language of the Old Testament. Um, this song is every bit as peppered with the language of the ancient scriptures as Mary's song was, and I, I think this teaches us a couple of things. First of all, it reminds us again that hiding God's word in our heart gives us suitable language with which to praise him. We talked last Sunday about, about praying the words of Scripture. Zechariah here gives us another example of that. 
hiding God's word in our heart, of reflecting on it, meditating on it the way that Psalm 1 calls us to, so that as we turn to him in praise and thanksgiving for the things that he has done for us, we might speak his word back to him in praise. Zechariah teaches us that. Then he also teaches us that the language of the Old Testament is sufficient to praise God for his works of redemption in the New Testament because both are are part of the same covenant of grace. In fact, the very language with which he leads off saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, is the the thrice-repeated doxology from the book of Psalms with which book 1 and book 2 and book 4 of the Psalms all end. Zechariah apparently finds the language of the Psalter satisfactory to sing of the new thing that God is doing in Christ. Because once again, those Old Testament songs are part of the same covenant of grace in which we find ourselves in the new. In fact, the whole collection of songs to which those individual psalms belonged found as its central theme the covenant that God made with David. Um, the book of Psalms has been described as a cantata about the Davidic covenant. It's a, it's a royal hymn book whose individual psalms have the house of David and as their subject and theme. We see that in the very introduction in Psalm 2, which is about God's covenant with David. It becomes something of an interpretive key, teaching us how to interpret the whole book. The book of Psalms is primarily about God's covenant with David, you see that in the fact that, that at the end and beginning of each of these, these books, all these themes in, in the Psalter, you see these glorious songs about God's covenant with David. Psalm 72 at the end of book 1. Psalm 2 right at the start. Psalm 89 right at the end of book 3. Singing about God's covenant with David. The hope of a, a future Davidic king who would come and rule on David's throne. And in verse 69 of Zechariah's song, Zechariah announces that that king has come. Even announcing it with the language of Psalm 132, which we just sang a moment ago, where God's people, sometime after the exile, are crying out, Lord, give us David's son. For the sake of your own servant, David, your appointed one, do not turn away your favor from his own anointed son. God has sworn an oath to David. He, his word, will not disown. I will choose from your descendants one to sit upon your throne. I will raise a horn for David, for my chosen. Make a light. All his foes with shame I'll cover, but his crown will shine most bright. That's what we sang just a moment ago from Psalm 132. As you look at verse 69, where Zechariah says he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, he is quoting Psalm 132. I'm echoing also Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, but but the most direct Old Testament referent to what Zechariah says is Psalm 132, verse 17. Actually, if if you flip back there, to Psalm 132, I couldn't help but notice how the, the themes of those last few verses in Psalm 132 inform so much of the content and imagery of Zechariah's song. When, when the psalmist says that God will make a horn to, to sprout for David, I mean, he also says that through that horn being 
raised up, which, which by the way, um, that, that horn imagery is, is battle imagery. Horns represent an animal's power and, and strength. And so the psalmist says that when God makes this horn to, to sprout for David, that he will rout the enemies of God's people. Verse 18 of Psalm 132, just one verse after this horn sprouts, it says, his enemies I will clothe with shame. The horn of David will come with power and strength, will defeat the enemies of God's people. Just as Zechariah says in Luke 171, that when God raises up this horn of salvation with the house of his servant David as prophesied in places like Psalm 132, he will then save us from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And that, that, that idea of God saving them from the hand of their enemies is again repeated by Zechariah in verse 74. Just as in Psalm 132, part of what God is going to do in, in raising up a horn for David is to save his people from their foes. And then notice also how in verse 17 of Psalm 132, this horn of David is also spoken of as a lamp. It says, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. And then again in verse 18, it says that um, on him his crown will shine. Well, in Zechariah's song, we see that same idea that through what God is doing, verse 78, the, the sunrise from on high will visit his people and give light to those in darkness. As a result of God making a horn to sprout for David, which, by the way, suggests um, humble origins. It suggests that the, the Davidic dynasty had been relegated to, to but a stump but God raises up a horn to, to sprout from that stump who defeats God's enemies and shines as a lamp to bring light to God's people in darkness. That's what Psalm 132 prophesies. And it's exactly what Zechariah's song sings of. God remembering his promise to David and raising up a king from the stump of David's line to shine on those in darkness as the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings to save his people from the hand of those who hate them in fulfillment of all his promises. His promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 his promise to Abraham, as it says in verse 73, verse 70, his promise through the mouth of all his holy prophets from of old. As each of these themes become part and parcel with the, the messianic hope of the prophets, a light who will shine and reign as king to defeat their enemies. We see those themes come together in Isaiah 9 from which we sang at the beginning of our service, the people that in darkness sat, a glorious light have seen. The light has shined on them who long in shades of death have been. It says that he will break the tyrant's rod as in the day that Midian fell before the sword of God. He will be the prince of peace whose government will ever increase on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice. Isaiah 9, that, that Christmas text that we hear each year, it prophesied of a Davidic king who would shine as a bright light to his people in the darkness of exile and defeat their enemies. So in Numbers chapter 24, in that, that climactic fourth oracle of Balaam, he spoke of a, a star that, that would rise out of Jacob, a, a scepter who would rise from Israel. Again, we see those themes come together of a royal scepter and a bright shining light, and it says that he will crush the forehead of Moab and he will break down all the sons of pride. 
Again, all of those themes come together. Malachi chapter 4, the very end of the Old Testament, the last few verses, it, it, it prophesies of the, the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings, but healing only for those who respond to him in faith. Otherwise, it says that he will burn like a, a burning oven against all evildoers, and he will cause the wicked to be trampled. What Zechariah sings of is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies of a king shining God's light to his people in darkness to deliver them from oppression and like Mary sang last week, bring justice. And by coming as the king who rules in justice and righteousness, he therefore guides his people into the way of peace. Zechariah says, because of the tender mercy of our God. As he says in verse 78, all of this is because of the tender mercy of our God. This is actually a phrase, that the, the, the language in the Greek that's used to describe his, his tender mercy or his, his bowels of compassion that will be frequently used throughout the Gospels to describe the very heart of Christ who is moved with compassion when he sees his people in their sin and suffering. It is the tender mercy of our God here who, who sees his people in bondage, who remembers the promise that he made to Abram and that he made to David and he made from the, the mouth of, of Balaam and for the pen of the psalmist and, and remembering those is moved to mercy, to compassion. Zechariah is telling us the king who comes is because our God is a God of tender mercy remembers every promise that he has made and brings them to completion. Zechariah's song is announcing that God keeps every one of his promises. Same gospel promises that were signified this morning in baptism. He is a faithful God who keeps his word. And he wants to remind you this morning amidst all the broken promises from which we suffer in this life, that he is not a God who breaks his word, but he keeps it. He keeps his promise to David. He keeps his promise to Abraham. He keeps also the, the covenant promises that he makes to us. He will save us from our sins as we look to Christ in faith. He is a God who remembers his word, but he keeps it. And that ultimately is what Zechariah is celebrating. As he sings this song woven from the tapestry of God's promises of old. God is a God who keeps his promises. There's another thing that I want you to notice from Zechariah's song, not just the Old Testament language from which Zechariah composes it, but notice also the place of John in this song. Where this is a song that he's singing on the occasion of, of John's circumcision and, and naming. But curiously, in the first eight verses of his song, he doesn't even address his son. And then when he finally does in verse 76... John's main task is simply in preparing the way for someone else. He says, and you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to, to prepare his ways. And John's main function will be to point to and prepare for another. Preach that God is tenderhearted, and by him are sins forgiven. His life's mission will be to point to the sunrise from on high who visits his people. The Davidic king who, who will come and provide the forgiveness of sins by dying on a cross. 
That's what John exists to do. Simply to come and point to that one, even in the things that he will suffer as he is beheaded and dies, pointing by his life to what will happen to the one for whom he prepares the way. As we'll look at this afternoon, as we consider the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, John will say in John chapter 3, he must increase, I must decrease, I must fade into the background like, like one of the, the, the grooms or the best man at a wedding, the spotlight not being on me but on him. John exists to point to another. John exists to put the spotlight on Jesus. And so even here in the song that is sung at his circumcision and, and naming, he, he fades into the background so that the king, our Lord Jesus, might assume the spotlight. This day, this, this great day of celebration is not about him, but his greatest significance is in pointing to Christ. And so with Emma, even as you rejoice in, in her birth and baptism, Zechariah's perspective, he reminds you that, that her greatest significance is in her relation to Jesus. And that this day is not first and foremost about her, but about Christ. The one through whom the forgiveness of sins is made possible by the tender mercy of our God who visits his people to give us peace. As signified in the waters of baptism, peace that he gives, the forgiveness of sins that he provides. Zechariah's song is not, first of all, about John. It's about Jesus. And so he reminds us even today that our rejoicing is, first of all, in what Christ has done. He's made possible the forgiveness of sins for little Emma. She looks to Christ in faith and believes, like Zechariah, that God is a God who keeps his word, that he is tenderhearted and by him are sins forgiven. And so today you rejoice not just in your daughter, but in the gospel promises that have been communicated to her. And you teach her to take hold of those promises. That's the last thing that I want to look at as we consider Zechariah's song. It's, it's a scripture-saturated song. And teaching us that, that what Zechariah is celebrating is the fulfillment of God's promises. It is a, a Christ-centered song teaching us that those prophecies are not, first of all, about John, but, but Jesus who must be the focus of our attention also. And then he teaches us that we, like Zechariah, must respond to these promises that he has kept in Christ. I'll note three aspects of the response that God requires of us. Um, first of all, that we receive the one who has visited his people. Notice both at the beginning and end of the song, Zechariah says, verse 68, that God has visited and redeemed his people. And then down in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise from on high shall visit us. And twice, he speaks of what is happening in the coming of the one for whom John will prepare the way as a divine visitation. And he speaks of the one who visits as God. So he's, he's speaking of what's about to happen, the coming incarnation of our Lord as, as God leaving heaven to come and visit his people, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, coming down from heaven for us. So it says in the Nicene Creed, Zechariah is telling us in the coming incarnation of our Lord, God is visiting his people. 
remember, a visitation also requires reception. If your elder calls you and says, I would like to come and visit with you, your response should be one of hospitality. Yes, please come. You receive the one who visits you. So, with God's people, as God is coming into the world to visit us, the, the, the divine visitation that he's making in the person of Christ requires reception. But sadly, as the prologue of the Gospel of John says, when Christ came to his own, his own did not receive him. That's John's gospel, but, but here in Luke, if you, if you trace this visitation theme, it's going to come up again in, I think, Luke chapter 7, where as Jesus is speaking, that the people will say, God has, has visited his people, a prophet has, has arisen among us. But then it will come up again in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, in fact, you can turn there. On verse 41 to 44, this is as Christ is entering into Jerusalem. It tells us in verse 41 that as he was drawing near to the city, he, he wept over it. And he says, you did not know, this is kind of verse 44 now, you did not know the time of your visitation. It's the same word. God is, is visiting his people in the person of his son, but they have failed to receive him. But instead have crucified as a criminal the author of life. Zechariah, back at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, said that God was, was coming to visit his people and guide them into the way of, of peace. But Jesus here says in verse 42, you did not know the things that make for peace. You did not receive your heavenly visitor, but crucified him. And so Jesus says, the days will come then when, when instead of knowing that peace that you could have known, instead your enemies will set up a barricade around you and destroy your city and destroy your temple and not one stone will be left upon another. Jesus was there speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 as God's covenant curse on his unfaithful people. It's the preview of the final judgment of hell that will come on all who reject Christ. The visitation of our God requires faith-filled reception. Like the way one pastor put it, um, playing on this, this sunrise and light imagery in Zechariah's song, he said, when, when the sun rises in the morning and it begins to shine through your window, you can either receive it or you can roll over, put a blanket and pillow over your head and, and resist the sun. That's what Israel has done. In Christ, the son of righteousness has arisen, and God is calling us through Zechariah's song to respond not like them, but to receive him. To confess him as Lord and God, come into this world to die for our sins, reveal God's tender heart in going to the cross for us, to, to shine his heavenly light into our darkness by saving us not just from our enemies, but from our greatest enemy of sin and death. God has come in the person of Christ for whom John prepares the way and he demands a response of faith that acknowledges him as fully God and fully man, that, that confesses that he is the only way to be saved from our sins, that rejoices 
and his coming. That's the second aspect of a response to God's divine visitation that Zechariah shows us, that that God has come into the world to save us from our sins. He has come to to initiate this second exodus, freeing us from bondage to Satan, sin, and death. He has come in fulfillment of his promise to David and his promise to Abraham to, to shine his light into our darkness requires that we respond not only by receiving him in faith, but rejoicing in faith. What is the first thing that Zechariah does in verse 64 as soon as God opens his mouth? It says he blesses God. Not not that he can somehow pronounce a blessing on God, but this is the same kind of language of which we sang earlier from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This This is praise and thanksgiving. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people. He has kept his promises. He has sent his son. He has shown his tender heart of mercy and compassion and that by him are sins forgiven. And as Zechariah reflects on all of this, as, as he has been reflecting on it for some time during his nine long months of silence, he cannot help but rejoice. But sing like Elizabeth and Mary. And in Luke chapter 2, Simeon and Anna and the angels Zechariah responds in the only appropriate way. He rejoices in the king who has come. The light of the world who shines on those in the darkness and shadow of death to give life by taking our curse and dying our death. And he teaches us how each of us must respond likewise. By joining in Zechariah's song, rejoicing in the day spring from on high who has come, the son of righteousness who has risen with healing in his wings. The only fitting response to this is praise. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king with glad shouts of joy. Phil Riken says genuine faith always expresses itself in jubilant praise. And he says, where there is no real worship, we may wonder if there is any true faith at all. These first two chapters of Luke's gospel teach us that the proper response to the one for whom John will prepare the way is praise. Receiving him by faith and rejoicing in what he's come to do. To save us from our sins and rescue us from the shadow of death by dying our death on the cross as true God and true man our Savior. That's the response God requires of us. If everyone here this morning to confess your sins, to look to Christ in whom God has visited us, to redeem us by his death, entering into the darkness for us that we might know light, the, the response that he requires of us is to confess your sins and look to him in faith and then rejoice in what he's done. And then finally, the last aspect of of our response, verses 74 and 75, as we receive him by faith and rejoice in what he's done, tells us that we also, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, even Satan, sin, and death, now have the wonderful privilege of serving him without fear all the days of our life. I'm seeking to live in holiness and righteousness before the face of God in gratitude for what he's done. That's the response required of each one of us. It is the response, uh, Derek and Kristen, that's, that's required of Emma and of each one of us 
to receive by faith the son of David and son of righteousness, confessing our sins and looking to him as our horn of salvation, rejoicing in the, 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 the humble service and response to him all the days of our life, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people. May God so work that response of faith in each one of us to his praise and glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we join with Zechariah saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Your son who has come is true God. The means by which you have visited us, he has come in fulfillment of all your promises to save us from our enemies, even sin and death itself, to shine his light upon us in the darkness of the shadow of death and give peace. Help every one of us to respond to him in faith and repentance. Help Derek and Kristen as they teach little Emma this good gospel news to show her, like Zechariah's song does, how all of the scriptures point to Christ who is the yes and the amen to all your promises. Demands a responsive faith that cannot help but express itself in jubilant praise for all that you've done. Lord, let this be the response of each of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.